Open your Bibles, if you will, to Galatians chapter 2. And um, I, I'm going to read you a, a paragraph um, that starts in verse 17. But we're really, we're really only going to take a look at one verse in that paragraph and actually only a portion of it. So, you follow in your copies of God's Word. Galatians chapter 2 at verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that, oh, that endures forever. You know, guys, um, summertime isn't the best time to start a series, and I think for obvious reasons. I mean, you people, you, you travel a lot. But, um, you know, it's probably not much worse than, than the fall because you're, you're still traveling a lot. And, you know, come to think of it, it's probably not any worse than the winter or the spring either. So maybe, maybe this, this is not a bad time to, to start a series. And that's what we're doing today is, is launching something else that will, um, take us through the rest of the summer. You know, I, I, uh, those of you who know me know the truth of the statement that I have somewhat of a penchant for the, for the dramatic. Um, I, um, I have been accused of overstating my case uh, just to make my point. Um, it is true. I, I have a, I have an affinity for the, for the histrionic. I, I don't deny it. I've had people even Say to my face, they said, um, they said, just take what he says, cut it in half, and you'll be close to the truth. Well, that's, that's true too on some things, but knowing all that hasn't stopped me. Uh, I, I still, you know, I still exercise a fair degree of bombast. Um, and, and I'm about to do it again. Um, I'm about to make a statement that some of you, perhaps, will think uh, is a bit of an overstatement. You know, it's over the top. It's, it's way too, too overstated. Well, here it comes. Wait for it. Galatians 2.20 is very important. Now, has anybody broken out in hives yet? I mean, let me do it again. Um, Galatians 2.20 is very, very important. 
Okay, Dr. Young, why is it so important? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Um, guys, I want you to notice the subject, not of, not of the whole paragraph, actually, not even of the whole verse. Verse 20 of Galatians 2 consists really of three sentences. There are three sentences in the one verse. It's been called by many people as the most complex verse in the entire New Testament. And, I, and we're only going to look at one sentence of the three sentences that are contained in verse 20. It's the last sentence that I want you to look at. And, 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 and it pulses this. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, gang, do, do you see what the Apostle Paul just did? He, um, he gave us some information about a life. He says, the life that I now live, I live by yada, yada, yada. Um, gang, which, which life is he talking about? I mean, um, to what life does he refer? Well, it's the one that he was then experiencing. It's, his, it's this new Christian life of his. And he says, this new Christian life that I now live in the flesh... This is the way I live it. Now, gang, he's about to give us some help in how Christians are to live the one life that we have. This one, the one that we're in now, you know, the, the Christian life we presently are enjoying. He's about to tell us something about it. And I, for one, consider that information that is quite valuable. I, I want somebody to tell me how to live this one. You know, I'm not, I'm not doing all that great. I, I appreciate somebody helping me out here. Wouldn't, wouldn't you agree that information about how you and I as Christians can live this life would be valuable? Perhaps even important? I, I would. I want all the help I can get, particularly from someone that I so admire and trust and respect, the Apostle Paul. You know, we spend good money looking for information like this. Um, we want people to give us, you know, inside information or formulas or the inside skinny. Um, because all of us are trying to get a leg up on life. <laughs> I don't blame you. Because life is hard. It's hard. This life is hard. Even for those of you who find it easy to make a living, it's still hard. If it's not money, it's health. And if it's not health, it's marriage. And if it's not marriage, it's, it's kids. And if it's not the kids, it's, it's the relatives. And if it's not the relatives, it's, it's, it's the neighborhood. And if it's not the neighborhood, it's, it's the job. Gang, being a Christian doesn't exempt us from any of that. Somebody help me. Somebody, Somebody help me unravel this thing that I'm now in. Somebody help me demystify the mysterious. Newsflash. That's what Paul's doing. That's what he's doing right here in Galatians 2.20. And I'm saying that that is very important. Now that's not too much of an overstatement, is it? Gang, when, when I first became a Christian back in 1970, I, like 
many of you bought a, brought a whole lot of baggage with me in, into my Christian life. Stuff that, that had to go. Um, in, a, in a word, there was a whole lot of changes that were needed. 37 years later, there's still a long way to go. There's, there's still a whole lot of change that's needed. You know, some of you aren't that old as a Christian. I mean, you haven't been in this thing quite that long. And, and we Christians have a way of being fairly dishonest to ourselves about our sin. But even having said that, you're, you're, we're dishonest and we're younger perhaps. But we all agree, I think, I think this is not enough. I think we all agree that improvement is still necessary. There's some changes that need to go on. There's some still much needed change. Uh, um, uh, more Christ likeness is needed. All of us would say that. Now, um, that's what I think this text is going to help us with. But, but let me, let me make two more observations that are somewhat autobiographical that I hope will frame our conversation. Gang, when I first became a Christian, initial change uh, was relatively easy. For instance, as a a 22-year-old recent graduate of the University of Tennessee playing uh, on an athletic team up there, I had a very foul mouth. It was made all the more foul by its volume. Uh, consequently, that, that had to change. That had to go. That, that glaring ugliness, that had to go. Well, in, in, honestly, that wasn't that hard to change. But the longer I was a Christian, I found out, I, like I bet you did too, that the glaring things... The things that were so obvious, those were only the tip of the iceberg. The, the real heart of the matter was not so glaring. And yet it was huge. It was so real, so huge. Things like envy, pride, and deceit, and lust, and idolatry and materialism and selfishness. All of those things lie just below the sight line. But they showed up in just about every waking moment of my life. In every decision that I made, it was those things that were so troubling and so difficult for me. So, so the initial change of the, of the tip of the iceberg, oh, that was fairly easy. But it was only the tip of the iceberg. Now, now, here's the other thing that, that is somewhat autobiographical. And I, I hope this is not true of you. But it was true of me. Be, because I did make some initial changes, some, and I saw some initial successes, I really got off to a, to a bad start. Does that confuse you? Let me tell you why I say that. Because of those, those initial victories, I came to the conclusion... That this struggle that uh, we're all in against sin, it was um, it was winnable. All I had to do is is um, you know 
do all the right things, apply all the right formulas, you know, um, push all the right buttons, flex all the right spiritual muscles, you know, put together the right Christian to-do list, jump through all the right hoops, and I'd be just fine, uh, and I could really pull this thing off. Now, folks, that's the approach that today I call the eat-your-vegetables approach to Christian living. And let me tell you why I call it that. That is, that's the eat-your-vegetables approach to Christian living. Here's, here's why I call it that. You, you remember when we were kids, what our parents used to say to us? You know, they'd say, um, Now, son, you need to eat them vegetables. Yeah, son, I know they don't taste good. <coughs> you know, Brussels sprouts and... I mean, whoever wanted to eat one of those things. Um, yeah, I know they don't taste good, boy, but, you know, you got to eat them things. you got to eat... Because, you know, you eat enough of them things and you eat them long enough and you're going to be big and strong. So then I become a Christian. So, you know, in, in my Christian version of that is Bible study, prayer, church attendance, give. I know those things aren't so much fun. But you need to do those things anyway, because, I mean, you know, um, if, you, if you do those things, then boy, you're going to grow up and you're going to be a, you're going to be a Christian superstar. I mean, they're going to write books about you. You just, I know they're not fun, but you just, you just do them anyway. Now, gang, amazingly, for me, it was a long time before I figured out that that was the wrong approach. Now, I need to insert this right here so that nobody will get nervous, and I wouldn't blame you, but, gang, don't misunderstand me. Bible study, prayer, church attendance, giving, witnessing, those are important things, and you're not going to go very far without them as a Christian. But my point is this. You can do those things in the sheer determination of your will. I'm going to eat my vegetables. These things, Bible study, prayer, all those things, when they're used as a formula, as some kind of code of, of Christian ethics, they produce something in us that is not pretty. They produce a spiritual pride, a, a self-righteousness, a, a Phariseeism that is so unhealthy, not to mention ugly. Gang, there's a couple of ways to mismanage life, the Christian life. You can mismanage it by being like the prodigal son and be very, very bad. Or you can mismanage it like his brother and be very, very good. I'll tell you more about that a little bit later. But, gang, I wasn't, I wasn't too deep into the Christian life until I ran into verses like Matthew 5.48 that says, Be ye therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And I thought, with a moment's honest self-reflection, <laughs> I'm not doing too good. 
um, I, th- this, there's not a whole lot of progress being made on that stuff below the sight line. There, there seem to be just some obstacles, some things that, that got in my way to progress that, that made my becoming a Christian seem easy. I mean, you know, when you become a Christian, what God does is he takes a dead person and makes the dead person alive. And boy, he does that in a blink. But this Christian living business, oh, that's where he takes an ungodly man like me and uh, starts this process of making them godly. And that took a life, that takes a lifetime. That process, oh, that was long and arduous and hard and, and, and it seemed to happen in inches, not feet. There was, there was needed change. I saw that. I saw it well, but it wasn't going very well. It wasn't going real fast. There wasn't a whole lot of progress being made. I mean, in some ways, all that selfishness and envy and, you know, that this wasn't, not a whole lot of progress being made there. Well, gang, that's what this new series is about. It's about mortification of the flesh. (laughs) That's what the Puritans used to call it. Mortification of the flesh. Don't you love that word, mortification? We don't use that word anymore, except we only use it to describe uh, being embarrassed. Like, um, oh, I wore the wrong outfit to the reception and I was mortified. Well, that's not what the Puritans mean, and that's not what I mean. Mortification means it, it used to mean putting something to death, taking something to the mortuary, making something dead. And, and, and this series is about the mortification of the flesh. You know, it's a kind of a scary word. We don't know exactly sure what it's going to involve. But don't you want it? I mean, I think you do. Aren't, aren't you tired of being... Tormented by your own flesh? You know, I, I, I've struggled with sexual immorality all of my life. I've, I've, I wrestle with fear and panic attacks. I find myself up and down in anger and, and I blow my top and I'm, I'm, I'm consumed as a selfish individual all of the life is supposed to. Aren't you just, wouldn't you like to see some of that change? I read some guy, and I don't know who he was, but his, he was a piece of English nobility. He was a duke, and he said, any change at any time for any reason is to be, is to be deplored. And then he went on to say, come weal or come woe, status is my quo. Well, gang, I don't want this to be the quo. I don't want status to be, I don't want to have this, and, and change is not deplored by me. I long by change, and I'm not alone. I think you do too. And that's what this is going to be about for the next seven or eight weeks. King, if you'll look again at, at Galatians 2.20 with me, Paul is saying, the life that I now live in the flesh, this one, The one that I'm now experiencing, this is the way that that one is supposed to be lived. He's about to help us, guys. My life as a Christian is to be lived like this. 
And I, and I want you to know that we're going to return to Galatians 2.20 several times in this series. But today, all I've got for you is four introductory principles that I hope will whet your appetite for more. You know, but I always hope that. Um, it's four introductory principles that will, will frame our discussion in terms of this eight-week-long look at mortification of the flesh. Okay, so four introductory principles and we'll, and we'll be done. Here's the first one. As far as mortification of the flesh, this how do I live this Christian life? The first one is this. There is a right way and there's a wrong way. And evangelicals seem to know more about the wrong way than they do the right way. Let me put it differently. We've got a whole lot of the elder brother in us. Do you know what I mean by that? <laughs> uh, you know the, remember the story of the prodigal son? Uh, Luke 15, everybody knows the parable of the prodigal son, I, I think, or at least most do. And the prodigal son was the one that went to his daddy and says, I want my inheritance. So he took his inheritance money and went over to the faraway country and he squandered his living on riotous living. Then he comes to his senses. He goes back to his father. His father is so happy to see him. He runs and meets him and uh, just throws a big celebration. Gives him a ring and a new sandals and a new robe and kills the fatted calf. And I mean, they break out into a party. Well, about that time, his brother, who is known as the elder brother, the elder brother hears the big bash going on and he calls a servant. He says, uh, you know, what's going on in there? And uh, the, the servant says, well, your brother's home uh, from the faraway country uh, and your father's killed a fatted calf and has thrown a big party. The elder brother's really mad about that. The father hears about it, comes outside and says, what's the matter, you boy? And he says, daddy, for all these years, I've been staying right here close to you. I've been doing everything you told me to do, Daddy. Where's my calf? You hadn't given me such as, as much as a goat. Why, I've been working for you all these years. I've been doing all the right things. I've been, I've been trying real hard. And you owe me. Gang. The church in the Bible Belt produces a whole lot more elder brothers than it does prodigal sons. There's a whole lot of that in us. God, listen, I've been reading my Bible like you said. I go to church and I throw in a few bucks every now and then. And I've been staying close. I didn't squander my life like them. God, you owe me. <laughs> well, gang, needless to say, that's the wrong approach. But I think we know more about that one than we do the right one, the right approach. And we're going to look at that. Here, here's the second introductory principle. The standard... For our Christian living is a whole lot higher than you ever dreamed. Gang, becoming a Christian didn't just um, uh, 
give us some training in moral reform. You know, kind of change our schedule and we added church attendance to the weekends. Folks, do you remember that text that I quoted a few minutes ago from Matthew 5? Uh, Be you therefore perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Yeah, well, I heard that one, Dr. Young. I heard you say that, but you, <laughs> you're not saying, you're not suggesting, Dr. Young, are you? I mean, uh, you're not saying that, uh, that, that, that the standard is perfection, are you? <laughs> you're not saying that, are you? No, I, I'm not, I'm not saying that. Jesus is. Perfection in my private life as well as my public life. Perfection in the weekdays as well as the weekends. Tuesday afternoon as well as Sunday morning. Perfection when it comes to those things like sins of omission as well as commission. The way I use my money, my sexuality, my politics, my tongue, my mind, my eyes, my relationships to all the races. In my, in my personal life, in my social life, in my economic life, in my corporate life, in my civic life. Every facet of my life, the standard is, oh my. Well, if that's so, then there's a whole lot of change that needs to go on. Don't you think? You know, um, there, is a, there is a text in 1 Corinthians 15 that is often cross-stitched and put in a plaque and hung on the wall in the church nursery. You've seen it. I know you've seen it. It's kind of a little joke. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 51 in the church nursery, and it says, we, sh- we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. You know, it's about the little babies in the nursery. They're not all going to go to bed, but, you know, we'll all get a new diaper on them, you know. Well, um, but we're all going to be changed. And, and in that context, indeed, Paul is talking about that ultimate one, that final one, that, that eternal one, where we're changed from the, the temporal to the eternal. But ladies and gentlemen, along the way, from here to then, there's hundreds of them. Hundreds of changes that need to be made in all of us. Huh? Which brings me to my third introductory principle. And the good news, and the good news is, you and I are tweakable. Even if you've been been plagued with worry all your life, you don't have to worry for the rest of your life. Or um, you were born a bigot. Well, you don't have to die a bigot. Uh, Well, I just struggle with lust. Well, good, I understand. Well, that can be changed. Well, greed. Greed has got me imprisoned. Well, we'll get you a get-out-of-jail-free card. Gang, where do we get this idea that we're incapable of change? Where do we get this? Where do these sentences come from like, well, it's just my nature to be selfish. You know, all my life I've struggled, but this is just how I am. I guess I'm just wired that way. Well, you know my daddy and my granddaddy, they were like that, and I'm like that too. I'm just, I'm just uh, somebody that really does want the world to revolve around me. Learn it from my daddy. I guess it's just the way I am. Gang. You know, we wouldn't do that with our bodies, you know. It's just my nature to have a broken leg, and there's nothing I can do about it. 
No, if our bodies are broken, we go get them fixed. Well, don't you think we ought to fix our souls? Don't you think we ought to ask somebody for some help for our sour attitudes? Don't you think that somebody ought to stand beside us as we try to change that voyeurism that plagues three out of ten men in the Christian church? Those escapes into sexual fantasy? Don't you think that that ought to change? It, it ought to, and it can. And Jesus can change that, ladies and gentlemen. The question is, how? How does he do that? Well, that's what I want to show you over the summertime. Now, but to give you just a, hopefully, again, to whet your appetite, just a little preview of basically what you're going to hear a whole lot about in the summer or the rest of the summer, I want you to go back and look at Galatians 2.20 with me. Again, just the last third of it, just the last sentence, here's what Paul says. And the life I now live in the flesh, here's how I live it. I live it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Folks, real love loves us just as we are, but it doesn't leave us just where it found us. Indeed, God accepts people without us having to clean ourselves up before we come to him. Yes, 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 that's true. Indeed, he does. But real love doesn't leave us there. It changes us. It's the nature of love. It's, it's the nature of real love that, that changes us by loving us. It changes us into that thing for which we were intended. The thing by which, for which we were designed. C.S. Lewis used to say, God is easy to please, but he's hard to satisfy. Gang, think of your marriages. Are you the same person today that when you, when you were married? Hasn't loving and being loved changed you in your marriage? Folks, Susie and I will celebrate 37 years of marriage tomorrow. And I, I, I had this sneaky feeling that today... Susie wouldn't marry the guy that she married 37 years ago. I mean, gosh, I think she was drunk the, the first time that she said yes. But, but um, that's just a joke. She wasn't drunk. It was just a joke. <laughs> but, but all I'm trying to say is, guys, love changes us. Real love establishes a context in which changes my delight. You know, Karl Marx, who was the, uh, the, the author, the founder of communism, he said once that philosophers have only interpreted the world differently. The point is, however, to change it. He's right, you know. They just don't know how. Philosophers just don't know how to change it. But God does, and he does it via 
everlasting love that molds and shapes and changes its objects. Guys, um, Dostoevsky, who is eminently quotable, Dostoevsky says this in his novel, uh, Brothers Karamazov. He says, love in action is a harsh and dreadful thing compared to love in dreams. You see, guys, love in dreams doesn't do you any good. But, but a dream, an idea, even a theological system is a flattering addition to one's mind. But an idea, a dream, a, 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 a piece of theology doesn't necessarily change you. In fact, guys, I'm convinced that so many Christians today identify Christian growth as finding a new Christian fact. Finding a new piece of data. They, 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 they assume that Christian growth is to be equated with learning. Oh, did you hear how many gallons of salt water are in the Dead Sea? Why, there's nine billion gallons. No kidding. And they identify that kind of new information as, oh, that I'm growing as a Christian. No, no, ladies and gentlemen. Love is a harsh and dreadful thing. It is. Because it has this component in it that ultimately changes the object of it. Did you hear about the theologian who, after he died, he was offered the choice of going to heaven or going to a lecture on heaven? And he chose the lecture? <laughs> I'm afraid many Christians would too. Because they identify Christian growth as just learning something new. Gang, the change that we all need, all of us, that change will not last unless it is rooted in the cross of Christ. Do you see what Paul says here? The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved. You know what, my brother and sister in Christ? I think there's a whole lot of you that underneath it all do not believe that God really loves you. The only change that lasts is the change that's rooted in the cross of Christ and its promise of a transformed heart. It's change brought on by radical grace. It's change that is Christ-centered. And here's what it requires. It requires us preaching the gospel of Christ to ourselves. It, it, it requires telling the story of Christ's work for you. To you, by you. Did you get that? I made that up. Telling the story of Christ's work for you, to you, 
by you. That is, you're the preacher. You're the one that preaches that message to your own soul. It's what Paul said. I lived this life, the one that I'm right now living. I lived it by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Let the appetites be whetted. <laughs> Guys, if you're as serious about following Christ as I think you are, you're going to love this. But you're going to find it awfully different than the eat your vegetables approach. Our Father, I do pray that you will use our times together to uh, cause us to see that there is something that we have really mismanaged. We've approached things wrongly. We've, we've approached you more like the elder brother than we have, than we ought. And we have um, developed a wrong sense of spiritual attainment. And so, Father, um, it's not new information we're looking for, but what we're looking for is enough new understanding of who you are and what you've done that that radical grace and radical love will begin to perform its changing, modifying work in our souls. Father, would you do that for us? Would you sweep away all of this foolishness on which we've depended and land us in the place where Paul found himself, living life by faith in the Son of God who loved him and gave himself for him? It is enough. We pray in Jesus' name.